Hey, little buddies, it's Uncle Rick from the Uncle Rick Audio Book Club. For today's podcast, I am going to be sharing with you some exciting stories from a great book I recorded not long ago for the club. It's called The Pony Express Goes Through. And the first story is in Chapter 5. It's called Jigger's Trick. The first time I met Uncle Rick, as he was familiarly called, was up in Jackson's Hole, Wyoming. This old pony rider always kept on the edges of the frontier. He didn't take kindly to barbed wire fences, and his dislike for paved streets and telephones was such as made him shy clear of them as much as he could. A child of nature always, he had kept close to her heart, till then, as an old man, he was pioneering that beautiful valley under the shadow of the Tetons up near the Yellowstone Park. It was at his cabin on the edge of the ranch village of Wilson, named in his honor, that I found him one day when I was out on a fishing trip. I had heard of his thrilling story of the days when he had lived as an adopted papoose of old Chief Washaki's mother for two years among the Shoshones. I was eager to get the whole of that story, but he did not warm up to giving me much of the tale until I got him around the home fire one night. Then I began to get it in its charming naturalness and vivid reality. This was the beginning of our friendship, which grew until his death the day after Christmas, 1915, up there in the frontier valley he loved. Out of that friendship came the saving of Uncle Nick's stories, or some of them, in The White Indian Boy. But those were not the only tales of the West in the storehouse of the old man's memory. It is another tale of the Pony Express, which I drew out of him one night while my two boys were listening with eager ears, that you are to get in this sketch. The story of a horse that tricked the Indians. The horses that carried both male and riders in that famous relay race, by the way, are entitled to unstinted praise. If it hadn't been for them, there wouldn't have been any Pony Express. And if all the stories of those four-footed heroes could be told, there would be a thrilling series of them. There was Black Billy, for instance, who always made a home run. He never failed to bring his rider through. One day he came in carrying two arrows, one in his shoulder, another in his flank. But he reached the station with his rider. He wasn't black at that time. Blood and foam and desert dust had changed his color. Black Billy got tender treatment and a layoff till his wounds healed. And there was another horse, a gray one, American boy, I believe they called him, a high-spirited steed. One day, when they were changing, changing mail, he broke away and went dashing along the trail, leaving the hostlers and rider at the station. Uh, changing the mail, that means uh, one rider finishes up his run and pulls the moshila, which is a mail pouch, off the saddle of the horse he had been riding, threw it quickly onto the horse that he's going to be riding in the next 10-mile sprint, and away he goes. That's what they call changing the mail, you see. But he did not fail in his duty, even though he was riderless. He carried the mail clear through to the next station, beating the pony rider who had hurried after him on another horse. And there was Jigger, the trick horse that Nick Wilson was given to ride when he had to run the gauntlets past the Goshutes and the Pavants, who had vowed they would burn every station and kill the riders and keepers of the Pony Express. I can hear Uncle Nick's quiet voice again as he told his story. I can see him sitting there in our big rocker. He filled it rather comfortably, for though short of stature, he was a bit plump in his last years. 
and I can see the eyes of my two listening boys, alight with the moving pictures Uncle Nick's words are bringing to their minds. Now, old Jigger, he's saying, was raised out on Antelope Island in the Great Salt Lake. The Utah pioneers had bought a herd of California horses shortly after they first came to Utah, and they had swum the herd over onto this here Antelope Island for safekeeping. They established a ranch there. A family by the name of Gar was put in charge of the ranch. One of their boys was named John. The Indians called him Shantanump, which means much foot. John had six toes on each foot. I don't know whether that was what made it easy for him to stick onto a horse, but Shantanump was a great bronco buster. They used to drive in the band of horses ever so often and catch a few for breaking. One day there was with the herd a yearling colt, black as the ace of spades, not a white spot on him. When they had roped and tied all the horses they wanted, they turned the rest out of the corral. The yearling stayed with the horses they had caught. Well, John Gar made a pet out of this horse and called him Jigger. He taught him to do some tricks. One of them was to lie down whenever his front legs were stroked. Well, the colt grew up in a few years to be a fine horse, and John broke him to ride. He proved to be the best saddle horse on the ranch. John thought a great deal of him, but he got so hard at one time and so sold him to Saul Hale. Saul used Jigger on all of his Indian campaigns. Later, he sold him to Cap Hooper, and Hooper turned the horse over to the Pony Express for a good sum of money. Well, I never knew anything about Jigger till I got to riding on the Pony Express. He was put out where I was, on the deserts of Utah in the country that's now Nevada, the worst part of the trail. And then when the Indians had cleaned up all of the way stations between Fish Springs and Simpson Springs, Jigger was given that hard stretch of 50 miles to run. If the mail was to be carried at all, one horse had to make that distance. All the stations had been burned between or the keepers killed. Only the best animals could be used there. They took Jigger and others of their finest horses for that long run. I was chosen to be one of the riders, and Billy Fisher, I think, was the other. One day I had to take the mail from Fish Springs East. There was a certain point on the trail that was pretty dangerous, just a little way from Fish Springs. The water from the springs there spreads out and makes a swamp, which reaches up pretty close to a rocky point of the mountain, which in those days was covered with cedars. This point made a good hiding place for the Indians. They used to get up close to the trail and shoot at the riders. But we had run the gauntlet if the mail was going to put through. Wasn't no way around it. So I got up all the courage I had and struck out. I was scared, I tell you, for I felt sure that the redskins would be a-laying for me. When I came up towards the point, I kept my eyes peeled, but couldn't see a sign of Indians. They wouldn't show up, I knew anyway, till I got right into the trap where I couldn't turn back. I rode on real careful. Then, just as I reached the danger point... I touched Jigger lightly with my spurs. He leaped into a dead run, and the first thing I heard was a yell up in the rocks and cedars. A few bullets and some arrows came whizzing by me. By good luck, none of them hit either my horse or me. I looked back over my shoulder, and I saw him coming. About thirteen of the devils, hard as they could ride, right in after me, yelling and shooting. But Jigger's grain-fed muscles soon got me out of the danger of their arrows and the few old guns they had. Their grass-fed ponies couldn't keep long within gunshot. Pretty soon I noticed that the engines were giving up the chase, so I reined in my horse to give him a chance to get his breath. Then I got off to look over my cinch. 
As I stood there, I began to pet Jigger, and in doing so, I happened to stroke his front leg. First thing I knew, down he went, flat onto the desert. I couldn't imagine what had happened to him. First came, thing that came to my mind was he was either sick or wounded. The Indians have evidently thought so too, for they let out another yell and came after me again on the jump. I was getting a little excited when suddenly my horse jumped to his feet. Saul Hale told me afterwards that that horse was better than a watchdog when it come to smelling engines. He had either heard them or smelled them, for he was up like a shot, and I was just as quick jumping on his back. We soon put distance between us and the yelling devils. That night, when I reached Simpson Springs, I was telling the boys about the experience. Then they told me about the trick the horse had been taught as a colt. There were some of the Johnson Army soldiers at the station. They listened to us, and one of them suggested a plan to get even with the Indians. The soldiers would make a night march over to some hills not far from Fish Springs and be ready for the Indians if I'd agree to try to bring them into the trap. Well, I was willing to do my part. About three days later, it was my turn to ride past the ambush point again. I came up with my eyes open, and Jigger was watching this time, too. He seemed to sense the danger. When we got into the mouth of the trap, he didn't need any warning. He was off like a shot. The Indians were ready, too. This time they shot before they let out any yell. They come close to getting me. An arrow hit my saddle, and another clipped off a lot of Jigger's mane just in front of me. I kept him going his best till I felt safe enough. Then I slowed him up a little to tease him on. The Indians followed me about two miles this time before they began to lag and give it up. Then I got off my horse and stroked his leg on purpose. Down he went again. Well, I began to act excited over him. Next thing I knew, that band was coming on full tilt. Their smell or their hollering brought Jigger back to his feet, and I leaped onto him. This time I had trouble to hold him back. But I managed to keep from getting too far in the lead until finally I had most of them among the hills where I wanted them. Finally, I give a yell, and the soldiers rose up out of their hiding places and began to fire. Two or three of the Indians were killed. The others scooted back to tell the tribe what had happened. We didn't have any more trouble with them after that. The way stations were rebuilt, and Jigger was given a good rest. But the fine horse was kept in service to the last run of the Pony Express. Well, that's a lot of excitement to pack into one story, isn't it? But Uncle Nick was a real live Pony Express rider, and he had a bunch of other adventures too. In this next chapter, we're going to read about one of those. This one's called A Flint-Headed Arrow. Uncle Nick never wanted to take off his hat, even in the house. We often wondered what was the reason, but no one would think of asking why. Our first thought was that he had fixed the habit when he was a boy among the Shoshones with whom he had lived for two years as the adopted son of old Chief Washaki's mother. This guess was wrong, however, as we discovered one night when he sat in the old rocker quietly telling us more of his stirring experiences on the Pony Express trail. They took me as a rider, he said, when I was just 15, Doc Faust and Major Egan going my bond. Most of the boys were a little older, but few of them were over 20. You see, they wanted riders as light as jockeys. Well, I was about the right weight then, and though I was pretty young, I could stick on the worst horses they had. And they had some that were pretty tough. If the hostler could lead one of the Mustangs out of the stable without getting his head kicked off, he thought the horse was broke. I'd learned how to handle such broncos, 
And besides, I knew Indians off by heart. So I got the job. After I'd taken the Pony Riders' pledge that I wouldn't drink or swear or fight with the other boys, and that I'd be faithful in my duties, which meant that I'd take the mail through, they gave me a little Bible and set me to work. The pay wasn't much for the hard job and the dangers. Just think of jumping on a horse and pounding away full tilt for ten miles, leaping on another and pounding away again for the same distance, and then taking more of the same jolting with another horse and another and another. I've heard that the Persians who used to run such relay races would bind up their heads to keep the blood from bursting through. But I don't believe any of our boys ever did that. Some of them had to lay off a good while between runs, however, until they got hardened to the job. Our saddles were not very easy riding either. They used a kind of skeleton saddle over which was thrown what the Spaniards called a mochila. This was just the big leather covering for the saddle tree, which was left loose so it could be lifted off quickly and thrown on the saddle of the fresh horse that stood raring to go when we'd dash up to the station. The mochila had four leather pockets on it for the letters, two on each side, fastened with little padlocks. One of these was the way pocket. The station keepers had the key for this so they could take out the letters for the station and put others into it. The other pockets were for the through mail. My first beat was from Shell Creek in Nevada to Deep Creek in the western edge of Utah. Once when I came crashing up to the Deep Creek station, expecting to pass the mail on to the other rider and take a well-earned rest, I didn't find any rider to carry the mail on to the east, so it was up to me to do it. On I went, up over the divide, through Overland Canyon and towards Willow Springs at the edge of the White Desert. There I learned that the Indians had turned ugly and had done some killing, which delayed the mail. Another rider took up the run while I stayed with Pete Neese, the station keeper, and some other men who were there. While I was waiting for the next rider to chase me out, a bunch of engines rode up to the station and asked for something to eat. Neese offered them a small sack of flour, but they demanded a sack apiece, which made Pete mad. He threw the sack back into the station and ordered them to get out. The Indians left in anger, and as they were passing our corral, they shot some arrows into an old cow. Nice grabbed his gun and blazed away, killing two of the redskins, while the rest of them cleared out like scared devils. That wasn't the last of them by a long shot. We're in for a hot time now, boys, said Nice. Then he began to lay plans with us to meet the attack we felt sure would come. His plan was to take the Indians by surprise by having us place ourselves some distance away from the station when night fell, and then give them a hot welcome if they came. It was a daring thing to try, but we had confidence in Pete. He was the bravest fellow I ever knew, clear-headed, too, and a dead shot. Well, the Indians returned their call just as he said they would, the whole band of them yelling like a pack of demons. Before they reached the station, he began to fire at them out of the dark, jumping aside with each shot. The rest of us were supposed to follow his lead, but I got so excited I didn't do much but jump. Finally, I landed in a ravine and lay there. Then the firing stopped. I didn't know what had happened, but after a while I stole back to the station and heard the men inside, so I went in to get some praise I didn't deserve. The boys thought I was still after the Indians. Pete's surprise attack had worked, but it didn't end our Indian troubles. Not long after this, I was making my run through one of the canyons on our trail when suddenly I was confronted with four Indians who had jumped out of the rocks ahead of me. I whirled my horse to dash back, and there were three others right in the road. Their bows and arrows and the one old gun they had were trained right on me. I was trapped. 
There was nothing for me to do but take my medicine, so I just stopped my horse and waited. There was only one thing gave me a ray of hope. As I looked over the band, I recognized Tabby, an Indian who had been a friend of my father. He wouldn't give me any sign of recognition. He just kept a flint face. Their leader, one-eyed and mean-looking, the one that had had the gun, walked up, grabbed my bridle rein, and ordered me to get off. I obeyed. Well, what else are you going to do but obey? The three others closed in and took my revolver. Then, as two of them led my horse away, the old rascal began to talk to me. He said I had no right to cross their country. The land was theirs, and they were going to drive out the white man and burn the stations and kill the pony riders. With this threat, he left me standing in the trail and joined the rest of them, who had walked off a little way while he was jabbering at me. I could hear him talking, but couldn't make out what they were saying. Then one of them lit a fire, and the thought flashed they were going to burn me to death. It was all I could do to hold myself from making a fight for my life, but I saw how foolish that would be, so I just cooled down and waited. Pretty soon, one of them came back and asked me for some tobacco. Luckily, I had some, and I gave him every bit of it. He went back to the others, and they all had a smoke. That made things look a little brighter. Then old Tabby came to talk with me. He said that the Indians were bent on killing me, but it took a unanimous decision of an Indian council to pass a death sentence, and Tabby wouldn't agree. My father, he said, was his heap good friend. I must turn back and not ride there anymore. They'd surely kill me. But this mail's got to go through, Tabby, I said. Get him to let me take it this once, and I'll never ride here again. He went back to the other Indians, and after some more talk, they let him bring my horse. They kept my revolver, but I didn't care for that. I thanked old Tabby and got out of that danger spot fast as that pony had carry me. My promise to Tabby was kept, too. I never did ride on that part of the trail again. Major Egan gave me a run farther west out in Nevada, but even this didn't take me out of Indian dangers. Times kept getting worse as far as the Redskins were concerned. It was war days, and the Indians had caught the spirit somehow. They didn't take kindly to the white man's rushing over their country, killing their game, and settling on some of their choicest homelands. It took only a reckless act on the part of some whites to start them on the warpath. Such an act came out there one day when a fool took a shot at an inoffensive old Indian who was up on the hillside trying to trap some ground squirrels to feed his family. The Indian was killed and left lying there beside the road. The killer had something to brag about but it was the boys that ran the Pony Express and other innocent folk that had to foot the bill for this and like atrocities. I paid my share of it in full one day out there near Spring Valley Station in Nevada. Two boys, whose father and mother had died of cholera on the plains, were then tending that station. An old man who should have been in charge had got scared of engines and deserted these youngsters, but they stayed at the post like young heroes. When I dashed up there one day, they asked me to have a bite of dinner with them, so I stopped a little while to get the lay of the situation. Jerking off the mochila in the saddle, I turned out my pony, but instead of going into the stable as usual, he trotted off to where some other horses were grazing. A few minutes later, we looked up to see the horses going across the meadow with two Indians behind them. We dashed after them. I was firing my revolver as I ran, but the shots fell short. The Indians reached the cedar trees before we could. I had outdistanced the boys and was running on in hope of getting a better shot at the thieves when just as I was rounding a big cedar tree, one of the devils let fly an arrow which caught me right in the head about two inches above the left eye. As I tumbled over, the Indians ran on with the horses leaving me with the two boys. They tried bravely to help me, pulling at the flint-headed shaft until it came out, 
leaving only the flint in my forehead. Feeling sure I would die, they rolled me under the shade of the cedar tree and ran as fast as they could to the next station for help. Next morning, some men were there to bury me, but finding me still alive, they put off the funeral. I was carried to the station, and a doctor was brought from Ruby Valley. All he did was to get the flint out of my head and leave me there in the care of the boys. He had no hope that I'd recover. When Major Egan came along some days later and found me still breathing, he sent that doctor back again with orders to do something. I had been unconscious all the while, but after a time I was brought back to my senses, and then I began to get better fast. In a few weeks I was riding the Pony Express again, but I've had terrible headaches at different times all my life from the wound made by that flint-headed arrow. We knew now why Uncle Nick did not like to take off his hat. Well, I reckon he wouldn't like to take off his hat. That flint-headed arrow probably made a nasty mark in his face. Well, that's it for today, little buddies. It has been a pleasure reading to you. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. True Adventures of the Old West and the Pony Express. So I will leave you now. But remember, always put God first in your life. Be a patriotic American and honor thy father and thy mother. So long, little buddies. Parents, if your kids love today's visit with Uncle Rick, know that they will love the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. The Uncle Rick Audiobook Club allows access to dozens more stories, both from the Bible and history, to help your kids learn about godly character. Here's what one parent had to say about the Uncle Rick Book Club. Uncle Rick products are such a delight to our family. Our kiddos listen nightly to the Bible stories and fall asleep listening to God's word. These Bible audios are such a super reinforcement to what we as parents already teach our children. They provide our kids with a kind, gentle voice, pointing them to obey God and his word. Thank you. That was from Shelley. You can access the Uncle Rick Book Club at UncleRickAudios.com. See you there.